Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 3. It says verses 1 through 24. It's really the whole chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, And pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, it, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all of the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And thus ends the reading of the word. Well, I think most of you in here, if not all of you, have been around a while, so you know that Lent is my absolute favorite season in the life of the church. This past Wednesday, as we gathered to receive ashes, we started our Lenten journey. I love Lent. Now, I love Advent, don't get me wrong. I love the anticipation and the excitement of Advent. It's fun, and it's joyful, and it's exciting, what's not to love about it, but for Lent, well, there's something uniquely significant and meaningful about this particular season in the life of the church. Many of us in the room in this church grew up Catholic, and so what we most associate with Lent is the practice of giving something up for these 40 days, and that can be a super meaningful practice, and so if that's something that you have chosen to participate in for this Lent Um, That's a wonderful thing, but I also want us to remember that Lent is so much more than just that practice. N.T. Wright said that Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty. Not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants to know the joy of, he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things that he has now in store for us. Lent is a time for discipline, confession, and honesty, which is why we all like Advent better. (laughs) Advent is a time of waiting and excitement and wonder. It's far more fun than is discipline and confession and honesty. But where Advent helps us create space in the world for God, Lent helps us create space within ourselves for God to work and move. Each year we gather in the church on Easter morning for a day of celebration that Christ has risen. It is my favorite day of the whole entire year because it is a day of great joy and celebration. Most of us just like to skip right to that part. We live in a culture that likes to numb ourselves out at all costs basically. So we don't like this idea of having to feel pain. So most of us like to skip Lent and go right to Easter. But so much can happen during this season if we allow it. You see, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that Christ has redeemed the world. But what I want to do over the next six weeks is to help us realize why that is such a big deal and just how we got there. I want us to see that redemption has been a part of God's very nature since the beginning. And so this morning we are kicking off a brand new series called Redeemed where we are going to go, as you just heard, all the way back to the beginning to help us see what God has done in preparing us for the greatest day in human history. And so if you're new to faith or you're not super familiar with scripture, then my hope for this series is that it will help you understand the the larger story of God and just why Easter is the greatest thing that ever happened. And if you have been studying God for many, many years of your life, then my hope is that this series will help us to create 
an outline of the story of God that you can use to help share with others in your life who have yet to experience the love of Christ. We have a lot to talk about. It's a little bit of a heady sermon for uh, daylight savings, but we're going to do this together. Are you ready? So if you want to keep track, if you want to follow along, we are going to be looking in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking really at the first three chapters. So you can kind of put your thumb there in your Bible or open it up on the apps on your phone. And I'm going to start with this, with this notion. We're starting with this premise that in this church, we believe that this book is the starting point and the center of our faith and our lives. We believe that it is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. We believe in this church that this book has power. We believe, as the words of Hebrew 4 says, that this book is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So in other words, we are starting with the premise this morning that what is written in this book is real and true. And so when we open to the very first page of Scripture, we believe what it says, that in the beginning God created, created the heavens and the earth, that God said, let there be light, and that he separated the light from the darkness and called one day and called the other night. God said, let there be a vault between the vapors between the waters, to separate water from water. So God separated the vault from the water, and he called it sky. And then God said, let dry ground appear. And God called the dry ground land. And he gathered the waters, which he called seas. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees. And then God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And so God made two great lights, the greater one to govern the day and the lesser one to govern the night. And he made the stars. And then God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures to move along the ground and wild animals each according to to its kind. And then finally, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, over all of the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. All that he had created, he had called good, except for humankind, which God called very good. God formed man from dust. We talked about this on Wednesday. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. God breathed life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says that God put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So this is our important first note, because sometimes we speak of work as a form of punishment because of sin. We have this image that Adam and Eve were just kind of 
strolling through the garden, hand in hand, smelling the flowers, lounging all day. Work was not punishment. We were created to work. Within that, it's easy to assume that Adam was kind of put in charge of agriculture and groundskeeping, because that's the only thing we can imagine in the life of a garden. But that is not what the word work means here in Hebrew. The word that is used for work here means service to God. It has nothing to do with agricultural tasks. In other words, the work that Adam was given to do was sacred work, more like that of a priestly nature than anything else. He was called to care for God's sacred space. It was not a punishment for sin. Sin had not yet entered into the picture. It was part of the initial meaning and purpose of human life, to work in service to God, not as an act of authority, but one of humility and service. So God places Adam in the garden to care for this sacred space, and then what? Well, chapter 2 shows us that Adam is given all of the freedom in all of the world with just this one limitation. He has everything he could ever need, and he has access to the entire created order except for this one tree, right? Many of you know this story, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells him that if he eats from this one tree, he will surely die. He will surely die. Now put a pin in that phrase because we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. So all along, every single thing that God has created, he called good. Well, when we get to the middle of chapter two, for the very first time, we see God use the phrase not good. And what was he saying that about? The fact that Adam was alone. So even among the animals, there is no suitable helper for Adam, and so God creates one, one of his own kind. From pieces of Adam's own body, God creates Eve. Now, I realize that virtually every single individual line in the book of Genesis could be an entire sermon all on its own, so unfortunately we cannot stop and give due attention to everything that is worthy of it, but I will say that how you understand the creation of Eve has so much to do with your own understanding of what we call egalitarianism, which is just a fancy word for the belief that men and women were created equally, in fact, to be equals. And so the Hebrew words that are used in this text are extraordinarily important. They're the Hebrew words ezer konegdo, And so this Hebrew phrase means strong or suitable helper or helpmate. There is nothing in this Hebrew phrase that denotes power of one over the other or subordination of one under the other. There's nothing in the Hebrew phrase that denotes that at all. It was a mutual shared partnership. There was no issue of power in the creation of humankind other than God, over us. Adam was not given authority over Eve at the time of her creation. Now we know that that changed when sin entered in, and we'll talk about that a little later. But it is important that you know that at the time of creation, when God called all things good and called us very good, that we were created 
as equals, as mutual partners for one another. So just because things are done a certain way today does not mean that they were God's intention for humanity. So we have to be very careful when we assign or ascribe something as truth that was not what God intended for us. So God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to co-care for this sacred space, to preserve its holiness. They were given every single thing that they needed. They were given all of the freedom in the world. They had access to everything that God created, except for this one tree, which God said, if you eat from, you will surely die. So there are two trees mentioned by name in the garden, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are a couple of things that I think are helpful for us to understand about these two trees. The tree of life did not suddenly grant immortality. It's not like you took one bite from the fruit of the tree of life and you would live forever. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were cut off from access to the tree of life. So again, the Hebrew words that are used here to describe the tree are, are not the word forever as we have in our mind, this kind of abstract definition of time. They were words that meant this idea of perpetual life or something along the lines of this fruit constantly counteracting aging. So the idea is you can keep eating its fruit and you will never age. It's not one bite and immortality. It's you keep having access to this tree, to this fruit, and as you have access to this tree, you continue to not age. Sounds pretty awesome. What this tells us, though, is that the human body from day one was inclined toward deterioration and death. It's just that God provided a tree that made death unnecessary. So when they were kicked out of the garden and they lost access to this tree, death became an unavoidable reality. Does that make sense? So commentary author John Walton said that though the human body was created mortal, it was not God's original plan for us to feel the constant burden of impending death. The tree of life, therefore, represents a pre-fall indication of God's grace. Isn't that an amazing thing? Life and death cycles were always a part of God's created order, but he didn't want us, humanity, the only created things in his image, he didn't want us to feel the burden of impending death. So in his grace, he created a way for us to not have to age. And then there is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have to realize that this is not an either or kind of thing. Again, it's not that one bite from this tree suddenly grants you access to see two isolated things, good and evil. What this tree granted was an entire range of knowledge. And so a better translation of this would be something like discerning or discriminating wisdom. And yet one bite from it would also lead to death. What kind of death? Let's find out. If you look in your Bibles at Genesis 3, starting at verse 1, it's the text that Lois just read, so we're not going to read through the whole thing again. 
but it's the text where the serpent comes up and speaks to Eve. It is what, what is referred to as the fall, right? And again, I think we've talked about this at some point before, that just the title of that, The Fall, could be an entire sermon series in and of itself because it has caused great, great disagreement amongst scholars. So some people believe that the fall was a fall from life. Some say that the fall was a fall from grace. Some say that it was a fall from God himself. There are other scholars who believe that it was not a a downward fall, but a rebellion upward as they sought to become more like God. And there are others who simply believe that it was the beginning of the fullness of humanity. In other words, that this one act of disobedience created what, what became what it means to be fully human, that humanity never could have been fully human otherwise. What we do know is that when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, that they completely and radically altered their perception of themselves and the world around them. So the serpent comes up to Eve. Now, I think we have this image of of Satan and a snake, and we wonder why Eve would have even allowed the snake to come near her. But that is not what the text says. Eve would have welcomed this creature like all of the other creatures that she happened to be living with at the time. In fact, if you're paying real close attention, there is zero mention of Satan or evil in this text at all. So we do know from later in scripture that it was Satan who tempted Eve, but it is not written at all into the actual Genesis account. What it does say is that the serpent was crafty and shrewd. And again, if you're paying really close attention, you can see just what the author meant in calling the serpent shrewd. You see, what happens is that the serpent deliberately misconstrues what God said about the tree. And so the serpent crafts this question that was intended to get Eve to repeat God's command about the tree back to the serpent, but in her own words. And it worked. Because what she says back to the serpent isn't exactly what God said to her. It's really close, but it's not exactly what God said to her. And so what the serpent does is he negates what Eve said. He never negates what God said. And it tricks Eve. So the serpent basically says to her, don't think that death is such an imminent threat. So he doesn't actually contradict God. He just suggests that maybe what God said was to keep them from discovering all of the incredible properties of this tree, and that maybe the punishment really isn't what you think it is, or isn't as bad as you think it is. And she took the bait, literally. And where was Adam while all of this was going down? Somehow it became a part of our narrative that Adam was off on the other side of the garden, being this obedient little worker, worshiping the Lord, when horrible, disobedient Eve shoved a piece of fruit into his mouth and ruined the world forever. But where does the text tell us that Adam was? There with her. It says it right there. It's not even confusing or debatable in Hebrew or in English. 
she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There's no other way you can translate that. The other thing is that all of the verbs in Hebrew in this entire section here are plural. So every time you see the serpent use the word you, he's using the word you all or you both because there's only two of them. This was not a solo act or some kind of persuasion by one gender to another. Why is Eve the one who spoke? Well, the simple answer is that Eve was the one that the serpent addressed. Why was Eve the one that the serpent addressed? That we don't know. But please, and I know I've said this before, and I know that sometimes it's funny to joke about which gender ruined everything, but in all seriousness, we have to speak truth about what happened in this text because this false narrative that has been perpetuated by the church has done immeasurable damage to the issue of gender equality in the church and in the world around us, which is a very good segue for what happened next. We know that even though it says that their eyes were opened, it was not a comment on their physical eyesight. They went from living in a world that was completely God-centered to living in a world that was completely people-centered. God was the center. God was the decision-maker. God was the one with all of the knowledge and wisdom. God was their source of life. They had everything they needed. They knew only good. They were made like God, but in that moment, they tried to become God. And so their eyes were opened, and what they saw was shocking. They were naked. Well, they had always been naked, and it wasn't an issue before. But before, they simply lacked the knowledge of realizing that they were naked. And so once they had this knowledge, they were filled with shame, and they had to hide themselves. This first and second bite of fruit was the first and second act of human independence. And the effects of that one act of independence and disobedience had immediate consequences and also had a ripple effect that has not yet been stopped, that will not be fully stopped until Jesus returns to bring about the completion of his kingdom. Since Adam and Eve didn't instantly drop dead the moment they ate that fruit, people have claimed that their death was solely a spiritual one. Now, we know that spiritual death was a result of this event, but it was much more than that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil brought death. The tree of life brought life. Doesn't that make you wonder what would have happened if Adam and Eve had simply continued to listen to God, to eat from the tree of life and serve the space that God had entrusted to them? That commentary author that I mentioned, Walton, wrote about this, and it's such an interesting thought. He said that extending the garden would extend the food supply as well as to extend the sacred space. And so what he meant by that is instead of kind of the urban or suburban sprawl that we are used to, that the original sacred space, just as it was created to be, could have just continued to grow and expand little by little until all of the earth was sacred space. It's a cool thought. But obviously that is not what happened. 
You've heard the phrase paradise lost, but it was not paradise that was lost to them or us. It was access to God. When sin or disobedience entered the world, everything changed. Our God is holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. And so when the first act of disobedience happened, sin entered in, and the grief and the sadness was not in the loss of the garden, but in the loss of the relationship between God and God's once very good created ones. And so Walton points out that throughout the, the entirety of the, New, the Old Testament, that you never ever hear talk of regaining the comfort of Eden. But what you do hear talk of constantly is regaining access, access to the presence of God. He says, consider the case of a family that goes through divorce. Let's say that a father gets to keep the luxurious mansion that the family was living in while the mother and the four children relocate and out of necessity find themselves living in a small two-bedroom apartment. Undoubtedly, the children will miss the comforts of the home that, they, that had been afforded to them, but that sense of loss will be reduced to, de- to nearly nothing in comparison to the loss of access to and fellowship with their father. But even beyond that, while we are a part of God's story, the story really isn't about us. He goes on by saying that the most vile aspect of human sin is not what it did to each of us, but what it did to God, because our sin is a desecration of God. This desecration does not alter who God is, but it does dishonor him. In a similar vein, the most lamentable result of sin is not that it makes people bad, but that it makes God distant. That the fall put God beyond our reach. The yearning in our hearts is for goodness and for God, but our direct access to God has now been cut off. And so there were natural consequences to sin, just as there are natural consequences to sin for us now. What happened as a result wasn't all God cursing humanity. What happened as a result was humanity choosing things other than God, of putting other things above God. The text says that God cursed the serpent so that he would now crawl in his belly and eat dust for the rest of his life. And God said that because of their actions, the ground would now be cursed, that it would be difficult and painful to till the earth, that we would now have to work for our food. But God never cursed humanity. What God said was that there were consequences to their sin, that Eve would now have pain in childbirth, that she would now desire to have children which would create in her a desire to need her husband, which means that she is now dependent on her husband in a way that she never was before, which means that he now has dominance over her because he doesn't need her and she needs him. This was never a prescription of superiority or authority. It was about desire and need. As a result of her sin, her needs now put man in a position to dominate. It was not God's intention for us. It was a result of sin. And again, 
how you understand this text will inevitably inform your understanding of the world around us and your place within it. And because of Adam's sin, where the ground once blessed by God naturally produced all that humanity would ever need, now the ground has lost that blessing and it will forever take great effort and work and anguish simply to live off of it. Just ask Ed, he knows, right? But even above those consequences of sin, the primary issue was and always will be that sin separates us from God. Humanity, as a result of the fall, now stands in need of redemption. And so how will humanity ever find our way back to God? Will God ever grant us access to him again? How far-reaching are the consequences of that first sinful act? What is God going to do? His good and perfect creation is now broken and distorted. The God who created the universe just by speaking it into being could respond to this mess any way he wanted. So what is God going to do? Well, you're going to have to stick around for the rest of our Lenten series to find that out. And if you have friends who have never heard this story before, bring them with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, understanding the Genesis story will change the ways in which you engage the world. As I mentioned earlier, we will also continue this morning's conversation downstairs following the service, so feel free to join us for that. Then next week, we are going to talk about God's covenant with Noah, and I promise to you that it is more than the Sunday school lessons of your childhood, so you're not going to want to miss that. Friends, at the end of the day, if you, really, if you really want to celebrate Easter as it was meant to be celebrated, you have to understand the larger story that led to this day. It is the story of God, and it is a story that he invites you to be a part of. Let's pray. And so, God, we give you thanks for who you are, that you are a God who creates but also, Lord, that from the very beginning, you were a God who redeems. God, that when we first chose a way other than the one that you intended for us, you began the work of redemption right there and then. And so, God, help us as your people to be a part of your redeeming work in this world. For that is what you have called us to do. God, help us to engage this season of Lent. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to be honest, to be disciplined, to confess. God, because we know that it is in our frailty and sin that we stand in need of who you are and what you have. And it is only in us recognizing that, Lord, that we will realize our need for a Savior. And so, God, we thank you for your story, and we thank you for the invitation to be a part of it here and now. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.